It's autumn 1942, and a 56-year-old man has just escaped two years of Nazi incarceration and is now heading across the mountains to France. In his satchel, he carries a top-secret dossier detailing the dire state of Germany's economy. And in his head, he carries the evidence of her complicity in one of the worst crimes in human history. But he's also just hoodwinked one of the most powerful leaders in Hitler's Reich, and so there is a staggering price on his head. But he must not be caught. For more than the news he carries, it is in his very person that shell-shocked Europeans will one day find a bridge from which to escape the inevitability of a third world war. The unlikely and unsung hero who saved Europe is Robert Schumann, and this is his story. In the autumn of 1941, surely one of history's most unlikely spies was fleeing the Nazis across the mountains into free France. As he did so, he had four things on his mind. Firstly, as a man, he must stay alive and without any specialist training, keep one step ahead of a massive Gestapo manhunt. Secondly, as a citizen, he must inform the Vichy government about the Holocaust and the full extent of the evil which they had aligned themselves with. But thirdly, knowing the extreme dangers of doing that, he must entrust his documentary proof to a reliable third party who could make sure the Free West got the information if he was captured. And finally, and most important of all for us, as a far-sighted statesman, Robert Schumann must now prepare himself both intellectually and spiritually in the wilderness for the great work of reconstruction, not just for his own nation, but also for a whole continent now suffering the collective trauma of 85 million needless deaths and festering wounds that could scarce ever hope to heal without a miracle. And no small part of that miracle was Robert Schumann, and he had just crossed the Vosges Mountains and was passing through the fortress city of Bussancon. This time of year 1941, Robert Schumann was on the run. After his daring escape from the Nazis, he came across heading toward Free France. He stopped here in Besançon. This was, you know, an occupied town. You've got to imagine tanks, you've got to imagine German machine gun placements. Schumann just walked in. <laughs> he just walked in. 
he came under the assumed name of Monsieur Codagno, or sometimes he goes under the name of uh, Durant, which is his mother's name. Uh, he comes from Mull House, dressed as a rambler, on a walking holiday. He crosses the Vosges on foot, finally comes here, but this is only a very small part of his 14-day escape. Eventually he goes right the way across into Free France. The price was well and truly on his head, but no one, no one betrayed him. He did not want to settle down until he had delivered the news. Evidence of Schumann's movements are scant in the biographies, but the towns listed are Mulhouse, up there, and then he went south after that, Rougemont, Boussincon, here, and then Arc et Senon. 13 days later, he crossed the demarcation line into Free France at Montmorillon. It was here that he was welcomed by Robert de Rockford. Rockford was a future cabinet minister uh, that served alongside Schumann and who wrote one of the biographies. On seeing Schumann, Rockford said that he must now stay and rest. Unfortunately, Schumann replied, it is impossible. I have a duty to inform the government. I have a lot of very important things to tell them, things that they can't just brush aside. I must meet with the head of state as soon as possible. So that's when he left for the Abbey of St. Martin. Now the Nazi thought Schumann was heading south to escape, but he wasn't, he was heading due west. He was coming here. He had his dossier of statistics proving that the Nazis could not survive long. Not only that, he also had that vital piece of information which he claimed he got from a high-ranking Nazi source that something awful was happening to the Jews. He needed to put this into the hands of somebody who was a reliable source. His friend, the abbot, Abbot Don Basset, was that man. So imagine if, if the whole world had gone to hell and you were escaping from the worst enemy with the most pervasive scientific techniques ever, uh, you know, for warfare and interrogation known to man. Schumann having escaped after seven months solitary confinement, a few more months, um, under house arrest with Burkle, where does he come? He comes here. He comes to deliver the most important news, the most unlikely of spies in the oldest of monasteries. Let me read to you. Don Bassett, who was later awarded the Légion d'Honneur by Prime Minister Schumann for his courageous acts of resistance, recorded the conversation. And I quote the abbot of this monastery 70 years ago. There are no more Jews in the Ukraine. Men, women and children have been separated and taken. They have been transported to concentration camps. Often they are sent with hardly any water and without food. They are left to die of starvation and cold. They are often made to dig huge trenches and then are shot in front of them. They are set on fire with petrol, then covered with lime and earth. They are transported, separating fathers, mothers and children. The same goes also for those from Alsace-Lorraine. 
Don Bassett made other notes of that meeting and showed that Schumann had amassed a detailed report on the following aspects of the enemy. Germany's final ambition of world domination, its ideological, political and educational structures run on atheistic, materialistic and Darwinian lines, free speech and critical thinking banned from primary up to tertiary education, the systematic corruption of the Nazi youth culture and state education, and the warfare against minorities, religions, and particularly anything more than a nominal Christianity. He also noted Schumann's analysis of how an intolerant Nazi minority exploited the tolerance of a democratic country. It's amazing. It's the little people, again, it's like the hobbits, you know, an abbot peaceable abbot, a peaceable politician who'd rather have been a monk. It's very moving. That's what it took eventually. We shall see this over and over again. It was the power of friendships and forgiveness that really made the difference, that really set the difference to transform the culture of war, fear, animosity, bigotry, hatreds, and to turn it round. It took far-sighted geniuses. He stayed two days only before leaving again. He went to see Marshal Pertain uh, and uh, he gave the news to Pertain, uh, having managed to gain access to him. And the grumpy Pertain just went when he heard the news. But for his earlier war record, Pertain would have been executed for his part in the Vichy regime. But leaving him and his indifference Schumann had to move on. He chose not to join de Gaulle and the exiled French government in London, but rather to tour the centres of the resistance in central and southern France, encouraging the French people, particularly the Alsace-Lorraine refugees. Vernon, Châteauroux, Lyon, Royat, Bournos and Rode are all mentioned. He spoke to crowds of sometimes numbering 1,500 with news as one friend remembered it, grave, full of hope, deep and spiritual. In short, he said, hold fast, the Allied victory is just a matter of time. He spent the winter of 1942 in the Ardèche region, at the Abbey of Notre-Dame-de-Nierge, where he deepened his knowledge of Roman history and perfected his English by reading Shakespeare. In the spring, he moved west into the Rhone Alps, and it is there that we picked up his trail. We've come in search of Schumann, who spent the uh, winter 1943 here. If you want a place to hide from the Gestapo, this might be a good place. High in the Alps, uh, in southern France, near the Italian border, yeah, he studied the Summa Theologica, Thomas Aquinas's writings that were so influential to him. In fact, they were influential to him and Adenauer. Adenauer was at Maria Lacht, hiding from the Gestapo himself um, before he was captured and put into an internment camp in Cologne. And he was reading Aquinas' writings then. And it was not just Schumann and Adenauer, but also another future head of state too, the much-imprisoned Italian politician and nemesis of Mussolini, Alcide de Gasperi. 
These three pious Christian politicians played a pivotal role, not just in leading their nations from ignominy to stability, but also by saving them from the very real threat of communism. How strange it is then, when we find that what made these men more progressive and pragmatic than their contemporaries was something essentially medieval and not modern. The writings of Thomas Aquinas, a 13th century professor at Paris University, have been undergoing something of a revival thanks to the energetic writings of Pope Leo XIII. His letter, Revolutionary Change, written in 1891, sought an equilibrium between respect for human liberty, including the right to property and subsidiarity, and the concern for the whole of society, including the weakest and poorest. He aimed his polemical guns against the atheist extremes of Marxist socialism, but equally against a predatory and indifferent capitalism, famously challenging the Christian world to start living up to Jesus' teaching. Once the demands of necessity and propriety are met, the rest that one owns belongs to the poor. Forty years later, in 1931, another pope built on this policy document, expanding the prescriptions and warnings into what is now broadly called Catholic social teaching. Since his university days, and even more so now while he was on the run, Schumann allowed these currents of Christian thought to shape his political focus and outlook. I don't know whether we're about four or five thousand feet up now. It's a good road anyway. Beautiful day, not as hot up here as it has been in the valley, so it's rather a welcome break. It's glorious. That's it there, yeah, that's it. Look, you can see the church. Can't believe this place. Tracking Schumann proves very difficult for a non-Frenchman. Many religious institutions are mentioned in the sources, many places, some hard to pin down and some with multiple names. One place he certainly came in the spring of 1943, a place he enjoyed, a place he'd made many friends, is here at the sanctuary of La Salette uh, in the Alps near the, near the Italian border. He spent a very pleasant while here reading Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica. If you want a foundational document and inspiration for the founders of the European Union, it's Aquinas, his uh, great theological treatise. And this is what Schumann was doing here. We are nearly 6,000 feet up. It is at the end of a very long Alpine road. I don't know how many of the Gestapo ever came here, but yeah, I think he was safe. And he had made many friends here, apparently. I cannot imagine it's a more fitting place. I bet it's the sort of place that Schumann would love to have stayed, but the mountaintops are fine for moments. The fight is in the valleys. And soon he would have to return to those valleys because the war would be over in two years and reconstruction would begin. And they needed new ideas. They needed something different from 1919 if they were going to save Europe. And Schumann was the person to bring it. And though he later said, I shrink from it, even though I know what I have to do, nevertheless, he did it. And by his courage, he saved Europe, for which we are very grateful. A biographer gives us a glimpse of Schumann descending from his mountain seclusion after the winter of 1943 and heading to Bourg-en-Bresse. 
He writes, One afternoon in November, in heavy rain, a fugitive knocked on the door. He was a traveller without luggage, with no case, no personal belongings. Schumann may have had no belongings, but he still had friends, and one of them, Abbe Gerber, who had been canon in Metz, arranged for him to stay with a local family called the Braziers, near Beaupont, and then to the orphanage of St. Joseph, which was run by Catholic nuns. We're on the way to find where Schumann hid at the orphanage. We've come a few hours west and a bit north from Geneva. Uh, to Beaupont. This countryside here would have been uh, well familiar to Robert Schumann. He spent the last, almost last two years of the war hiding here at an orphanage. Maybe see if we can knock on the door. He had a room at the end of the corridor, so and he was here until the liberation. So looks like this is it. Beaupont. What we're looking for is this building here. The church is in the distance, there's the spire. Avenue of trees on this road. This is the road. There's a building with like a lean to. That is it. That is it. Chimney breast. Two windows. Okay, this is the orphanage as far as I know. It's now a bibliothèque. Let's see if they're open. They are open. Fantastic. As it turned out, my research was faulty, something a group of local men I met outside were quick to rectify. So these guys are saying that, it, that as far as they know, it is at the, um, the hospital for the handicapped, uh, back up, back two kilometers north. Pardon? Bonjour. So we're just popping into the library. Apparently this was a girls' school. You know, now it is a library, so, you know, we should see. The older women in the library confirm what the young men had told me outside. The orphanage was not there, but further north. So, uh, yeah, that's that. Uh, nothing. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> so we, you know, I rather fancied him staying here, really, but I suppose it might be safer outside the village, prying eyes, with uh, our need for bread, if it was taking precedence over the excitement of going up to the house. Fantastic. At the local boulangerie, we not only got directions to the orphanage, but also got a guide. I got the feeling that Schumann was still someone close to their hearts, and they would go out of their way to preserve the memory of his stay amongst them. But of course, you know, if a prime minister had hid in your village in the war, I guess you would, um, you know, local knowledge is going to persist. Decent, this lady shut up her boulanger is taking us to find this really what is a most um, important place in a way. Is this it? Orphelinie, the orphanage. It doesn't have that institutional look, doesn't it? Maybe that was the room at the end of the corridor. Because it is now a psychiatric facility, it was not possible to bring the film crew in or to see the room. But the staff did confirm that Schumann had indeed sought refuge there in 1944. The nuns of St. Joseph's had also helped Schumann by sewing a special cotton pouch inside a four-year-old's jacket, 
where Schumann's correspondence to the resistance could be hidden. This bridge on the road to Santa Moore. Schumann used to walk down this road with a young boy called Robert Gaylard, a four-year-old. Inside his jumper was pinned a message for the resistance in case they were stopped by the Gestapo or, or um, someone working for the Vichy government. Uh, that message was then placed inside a willow tree like this old willow here. Could have been this one. There was a crack in the willow at the time. Whether it was this one, I don't know. And those messages were for the resistance. And that is how Schumann kept abreast of situations while he hid in the orphanage. Uh, he called him Uncle Pepe, Gellard did. He, and years later he wrote Schumann uh, had sent him numerous Red Cross parcels. An extraordinary thought that in this landscape, uh, such acts of heroism were played out. Gaylard said even as a young boy, he turned the Gestapo away from the orphanage again and again. And well, they had need, for even as the Allied armies moved further east across France, the German occupation troops strengthened their presence in the sector of Coligny. But eventually, the darkening stranglehold of the Nazis and their Vichy stooges gave way to a new dawn, just as Schumann had predicted. The first news he got of the liberation was uh, when children from the orphanage came running back with chocolate bars that American soldiers had given them. I can't imagine the excitement. Schumann emerged out of his seclusion in that small room at the end of the corridor to, to share the joy of the moment. For the American soldiers, for the orphans, for the village folk, the war was over. But Schumann understood only too well that his real struggle was only now just beginning. He had survived the war, but few understood as he did what it would take to restore all that had been destroyed. And uh, this morning we were up in Switzerland, up at the Coe Palace, and uh, Andrew Stellibras, who's worked in reconciliation in war zones for years, he said, what can be destroyed in five minutes, five weeks in a war can take a hundred years to heal and the reconstruction which had been on Schumann's mind these last two years was now what was going to come to the fore and nobody would come up with the solution that he came up with. He was going to save Europe but he couldn't do it on his own. He needed key allies but it just happens that Alcide de Gasperi, Konrad Adenauer were being formed in exactly the same way that he was being formed, through suffering, through persecution. But not just that, were being formed by the letters of one Pope who'd been dead for 50 years. The encyclicals Rerum Novarum of Pope Leo XIII from the 19th century became a bulwark in these men's thinking. And it would be these that would form the intellectual fulcrum to lever Europe out of the distress, poverty, the warmongering. But that's another story. If you enjoyed this episode, then please show your appreciation with a comment and perhaps even subscribing to the channel. If you have questions, drop them below. And if you want to go deeper into the subject, then please check out the Saving Europe book 
and the other videos on the channel, especially the Book Distillery podcast, where me and my blue-collar scholar friends go deeper with top academic guests from around the world. So until next time, thanks for watching.